and the attention of our hearts and our lives, that you may increase our joy, and that you may help us to trust you that your ways and your priorities will lead to rejoicing and gladness all of our days. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm sure many of you have had the opportunity to be invited to participate into something. It might not be very big. It might be the person giving up the samples at Costco asking you to participate in a sample and be told that it's $9.99 down that aisle if you'd like some. But there's probably bigger asks that we experience in our life. In fact, during this time of year, towards the end of the year, your physical mailbox or your email inbox is probably loaded with invitations to participate in many good things. It is that time where people want to take advantage of people who, micro-tax strategies, want to be giving towards the end of the year, and all sorts of nonprofits, again, with good causes, are trying to invite you to the great opportunity they may have. I can think of probably the greatest high-pressure sales invitation that I ever received from a nonprofit was actually when I was unexpectedly walking over to Trader Joe's in Toluca Lake on a lunch break when I was at the time working for a bank. And uh, compared to other supermarkets, I don't know, but Trader Joe's gets people with gusto petitioning for whatever cause they seem to have outside. But there was this young gal, probably just barely in her early 20s, um, who was representing a, not a Christian, but a nonprofit organization called Oxfam. I was somewhat familiar with them. I had learned about them when I was curious to learn about microfinance and the work that was being done in other parts of the world. But this was for more of their humanitarian needs. But this gal, who probably only came up to about five foot tall, but with exotic green eyes, um, she said that she has family over in the, the Levant and Syria area, and she was here petitioning so that we could, I and others could give money for not just people across the world, but even people that she knows. I can tell you, this gal stared right through you like someone who would not be denied. To the point where, after politely listening, I tried to go to the side and... Like a basketball player, she would go ahead and box me into that square of concrete wherever I was on the sidewalk. Um, but she won me over. I gave him $25. <laughs> but there are many good things that we may be asked to participate in. This week, here at Bethany Baptist and at all churches that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, we're being asked to consider what is our participation corporately and individually in international missions. The first weekend in December begins the week of prayer for international missions throughout our denomination. And also a time where churches are asked to give to what's called the Lottie Moon. She's a well-known Baptist missionary fund. Um, as part of their ask for year-end Christmas giving to further God's work in the nations. But should international missions be an important focus of the church. Is international missions better? Is it more theologically centered, more pleasing to God than any kind of California evangelism or bellflower evangelism? What does the Bible say, and how should we let it establish the priorities for what we choose to participate in? 
So if you can, read with me from Romans chapter 15, and we'll be reading from verses 14 through 21. Before we do, I'll give you the main aim or the main argument of our time in Romans 15 today, and it is this, that we would join in Jesus' work of making unreached nations God's offering. Would the church join Jesus in making the nations his offering? We'll go ahead and read in verse 14. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I would not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our first point today is that we are to grasp that God is making the nations his acceptable offering. Let's start here looking at verse 14. This begins kind of the midway through chapter 15 through 16, essentially the long wrap-up or wind-down of Paul's great theological letter to the Romans. He's covered so many topics about why it is that man needs a savior. He's talked about what Jesus and his work has accomplished. He's even talked about what are the implications of living together as Christians. And now he's writing to this church, which he has never been to, actually. This church exists because of faithful gospel ministry from somebody else. Uh, But he starts off giving them encouragement. He says, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced about you that you are full of goodness. Now, again, Paul hasn't been there, but perhaps it's likely through the testimony of other Christians in his missionary network, perhaps Priscilla and Aquila and those like them, who have given him a good report of what things are like in the church in Rome. And he tells them, essentially, you guys are doing a good job. And specifically, you guys are filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another. You guys got good doctrine over there in Rome. Well done. 
And in fact, you guys don't just know it, you guys are teaching one another what seems to be good doctrine. Great job. And then verse 15 has a nevertheless. Now this is, as I read it, Paul having a very, um, very astute but respectful way of saying, I'm thankful for what God is doing. However, you do still need some reminders. Lord knows I need reminders. And we need reminders for one of a couple of reasons. We either forget things or we just don't actually apply or do things. My wife has been great at reminding me for the last five years, dear, the passenger front door still does not close all the way. When is something going to happen about that? I thank you to you car-savvy members that have helped me think about that and always remind me it is a small thing that will probably cost a lot of money at a mechanic shop, so I don't know how long that will be on the to-do list. But we do need reminders, and Paul is aware of some reminders that the church in Rome needs. So what is this reminder? And then why is he bringing it up? He says this, he says, Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Okay, why is Paul telling them what they probably already know? In fact, back in chapter 1, Paul said the exact same thing. He confirmed to them that I have given, I have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. But Paul's actually been repeating this throughout the letter. Why are we coming to it again? Is Paul just kind of wanting to gloat and boast about all the great Gentile-reaching work that he's doing? Well, no, there's maybe one reason here. Even though this church in Rome is a mixed congregation of both Jews and Gentiles, several verses in chapter 1 lead us to understand it's a mostly Gentile church. So Paul, if he's the apostle to the Gentiles, that gives him a little bit of room in terms of authority to be able to write and to teach them some things. But more so, as we'll see throughout the rest of this passage, Paul is giving the Romans, sorry, the reason for Paul citing that God has given him an apostolic calling to the Gentiles is to help the Romans develop a vision for viewing Gentile-reaching activities in Paul's life and ministry in light of the entire story of God's mission in the scriptures. When the scales came off of Paul's eyes on the road to Damascus, he not only could see that the Jesus that he was persecuting was the promised Messiah, but he also saw how the scriptures answered the question, why did a Messiah need to come? What were God's goals? What was the end game in this whole messianic project? Jesus himself answers that question. You don't have to turn with me, but in Luke chapter 26, sorry, 24, the typo, I to correct my notes. Jesus himself teaches his disciples what is the end game of his coming. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the scriptures all point to Jesus. But then he adds this, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah 
will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance of forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Do we see what Jesus is saying? He says, the entire corpus of the Old Testament, law, prophets, psalms, these all point to me, and disciples believe me, I have come and fulfilled them. And at the same time, these same scriptures tell you my purpose. They tell you the plans of God. They tell you why I suffered and rose again. It's that my name be proclaimed to all nations. Paul understands this. In fact, when he is giving trial and testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says a very similar thing to Jesus. He says, to this very day, I have had help from God, and I stand and testify both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. What did the prophets and Moses say would take place? That the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. The scriptures are saturated with sharing God's goal, which is that God be glorified by saving the nations to himself. Let's keep reading back in Romans chapter 15. So Paul is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And then he gives some elaboration as to what this ministry looks like. He says, serving as a priest of the gospel of God, my purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Interesting that Paul would say, I'm a priest of the gospel, some of us might be saying, yeah, what's up with that, Paul? I thought Jesus was the new high priest. I thought this temple ceremony stuff was all done away with. How are you a priest of the gospel to the Gentiles? Oh, that is a good question. We do know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was taking place in the sacrificial system. Priests were those who represented the people of God to God and offering prayer and sacrifice and acceptable worship to him. God laid out in the law what that would look like. He wanted proper worship, and that involved taking things and washing them and preparing them. All of ways which you did this, it said, God, I care about what you say. I'm going to do things the way you tell me to because I want to obey you. And the process of preparing and offering this up is right worship. But it's interesting. Paul is likely here thinking, though, about another passage in the Old Testament in Exodus 19. And there, before I go there, so I often, at least I, think about the role of a priest representing within the circle of God's people, helping them offer up worship to God. But in Exodus 19, it says that the whole people of God will be called a kingdom of priests. As a nation, Israel will now function in a priestly capacity to all the other nations around them. God's plan is that by appointing this people, he would make them set apart and unique. It is only to Israel in the Old Testament that he would give his law, the revelation of his character. It is in Israel that he chose that he would put a tabernacle and a temple and have his presence dwell. 
But it wasn't just to be kept for themselves. He says that Israel, your mission is to be a light to the nations. As a kingdom of priests, all this activity, if obediently and faithfully being done in Israel was to take place, it would be to point even these nations about what right worship looks like to the Lord. So in this way, being a kingdom of priests is somewhat of an evangelistic role to onlooking peoples. And Paul here is saying that as I represent the gospel in a priestly way, I'm presenting it for this effect at the end of verse 16. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God wants the Gentiles, but he wants them to be an acceptable offering. He wants them to become worshipers. Paul's priestly work in reaching and teaching and sharing the gospel is that in coming to know him, people from different people groups would now come and join the heavenly chorus. Just as we read earlier from Revelation chapter 4, God has always had the goal of having his eternal choir of saved humans include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Worship is the end game. And as many of you who participated in the Let the Nations Be Glad reading group at the beginning of the year know, it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that missions exists because worship does not. God is making the nations his acceptable offering. That is our first point. So how does that impact the way that we live? Something that I was challenged to think about in reading through this scripture was, if I look back over the last 12 months, the years since the last focus on international missions here at our church, are there any ways that I have grown in comprehending and cooperating with God's priority to reach the nations? And what would that look like? So I thought, is my worldview expanded where I have a better knowledge about here, now, in the year 2023, God has specifically been working in specific languages amongst specific non-Christian religions in specific parts of the globe where God is currently acting and continuing the work he began through Paul to bring the nations to worship him? Are my curiosities growing to know where and what God is doing? Friends, we will always be more curious about the things that we care about. And the things that we care about, we much more readily engage and give and participate in. If you were to stack rank the priorities that you care most about, be they desires, be they ambitions, what would be at the very top of that list? I can tell you mine probably look a lot like yours. How in the world can anyone these days ever buy a house in this maddening real estate market? How can perhaps I give children the chance to participate in extracurricular experiences that can enrich them as they grow and try new things? I know I personally cannot then get very consumed with self-improvement, whether it's about fixing my patterns of shortcomings and failure, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in relationships, like I really am thinking about that all the time. How do I get better? Or perhaps you care much about 
what is next in life? Perhaps that's both a desire, but also a great concern of anxiety. Should I start this new degree program? Is it time to look for a different job? Should I, we consider having a child or another child? Should we consider some kind of move? Or maybe, as you drive around town, and your, your commute takes you through certain parts of Los Angeles, you're burdened seeing the hurt of homelessness, of seeing parts in our city where poverty and other things cause a, are just more rampant in terms of seeing that human suffering. And you think about, how can I make an impact in that? Friends, all these, some of these things might sound more noble or more godly than others, but all those things can be good things to have concerns and cares about if they're prioritized in the right order. God, from cover to cover, makes it clear that his priority, what God cares about, is this. That he is glorified for his mercy, and this glory is coming from the nations that have mercifully been received by him. What adjustments can you make in your time, in your environment, or in your relationships that can help those cares and ambitions for being mindful of the nations coming to him? How can that change? How can we be better globe-wide, be concerned about God's globe-wide glory, getting more glory givers around the globe, that he may be satisfied and we may delight along with him? Here are a few ideas that I found fruitful, or even ideas that I've received from others. One is, is you could subscribe to different newsletters and different sources that tell you what is happening across the globe. I know even my best friends, if I don't see you for a couple weeks, I will forget about you. Not permanently, but I can just so easily be consumed with just what is happening within my near eyesight, what's on my to-do list, and that is my world. I need things that will break through and penetrate through my habits and my focus to remind me of God's priorities. This could be subscribing to updates from different sending agencies. This could be, if you know people who are missionaries, asking to be on that particular family or goer's personal distribution list. I know just in the past few weeks, I received an email from some dear friends of mine from college who now serve in Central Asia. And their newsletter was saying, hey, we've gotten a lot of requests asking, how is life different since the conflict in Israel and Palestine has gone to the level that it has since October? They said, we'll be honest, things are very tense and more than a little bit scary. They sent pictures of just large protests that are taking place through cities, protests that are in some ways violent, that are calling for his particular country to get involved with guns and tanks and warfare. They had just moved to the town that they're in from the larger capital city, and this part of the country is more conservative in their Islamic perceptions. And after being excited and moving and buying this flat that the Lord gave them funds for, they're now realizing that they need to kind of stay inside because the more they're out, the more they could have significant risk to their own lives. These things may be small, but if we have them and we actually choose to slow down in our hurry and read them, God can use that to help us grow in our concern and awareness for his priorities. Perhaps you can start a reading group with other saints on a book. 
that will help awaken your heart to God's mission. Perhaps you could, like some of you have, you could go and you could be an encouragement to those that have cross-culturally transplanted themselves to share the gospel. Perhaps in your family, you keep missionary prayer cards. And perhaps once a week around the dinner table, you pull those up, you share them with your kids, and just try to ask, hey, what would it be like if we were to live in that country with them? What do you think it would be like to go to a school that had a different language? These small interruptions can help us break through the often misprioritized list of focuses on our life and help it be flipped to align with the Lord's. Another thing is, often missionaries in cross-cultural situations are there to share the gospel, but they need to be there with some kind of creative entry strategy. I have a particular friend who has started a business in a North African country, uh, but he's not a businessman. He was an elementary school teacher before being called, and he realized he probably could use some support. There are brothers and sisters here in America that are part of his board of advisors to help him, not just to pray for their spiritual work, but to help him work through just the challenges of gaining clients, of dealing with employees, of preventing turnover. What are unique skills God has given you in your life that could be used to creatively help support cross-cultural opportunities. So again, God is making the nations his acceptable offering. One other way that we can do this corporately is by normalizing conversations about God's activity in other countries. I know I've been so blessed at the way Um, a good pressure to normalize certain conversations here at Bethany Baptist has changed me and my wife in terms of our growth of sanctification. To normalize conversations about sin and confession, something that our flesh does not want to do, is something I'm so thankful for. But what would it look like if it was normal and not kind of out of left field for us to share one another updates we heard about what God is doing today in other parts of the world? If all of us were seeking these inputs and we're thinking, how can I come to city group? How can we have the family we're inviting over for dinner? How can we deliberately make sure somewhere in there I get to tell them about this prayer request from things that we even heard in the um, prayer petition or the church and Christians in Brunei? What other parts of the world can we know where things are happening and share them with others and be part of fostering an awareness of God's priorities in our life? Our minds are like a sponge, and our attentions and our affections can only absorb so much and only squeeze out so much. We'll have to be intentional to leave capacity in the sponge of our hearts to absorb the things and squeeze out and share the things that God cherishes. So God is making the nations his acceptable offering. Our second point today is this. We are to participate in Jesus' work, by Jesus' means. God wants us to participate in Christ's work by using his means. We'll pick up in verse 18. Well, 17. Starting with therefore. Therefore I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has 
accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles. Again, it may seem here initially like Paul is saying, hey, look at what I'm doing. But again, the focus is not what I'm doing for God. Because Paul understands that his calling on the road to Damascus, he didn't just say, I want to change careers and I'm going to be a missionary for the Lord someday. He was specifically appointed in this time after Jesus' ascension and the growing of the church to be used to take the gospel to the nations. So by just referencing what has happened in the last several decades of his life is to just give strict testimony to what God is doing throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. But the focus, you can see, is on what Christ is accomplishing through me. He's not preoccupied with his work. He's preoccupied with the Messiah's work and his mission. The means by which Jesus is accomplishing these things, there are several we can see. First is, he does use people. Paul's talking about himself, and Paul is, like all of us, sinners that can be saved by grace. But also, he talks about that in the sending of people, that God's way involves word and deed. The Holy Spirit will use these dual components of the gospel, the message spoken, and then also the gospel lived out in reality, as his chosen method of leading the lost to follow Jesus. He will use both a transformed life and the transforming message to bring about change. He also says this, that is by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we read this, I think our emphasis should be on signs and wonders, which are specific words used to describe the things that both Jesus and the apostles did that gave clear testimony to what was taking place before the witnesses' eyes was the fulfillment of things promised in the Old Testament scriptures. In Jesus' own ministry, it says that he ministered in word and deed, Luke 24, 19. And Peter, Paul, and the apostles, their message was lived from changed lives, but that also ministered in word and deed. And these signs and wonders, both of them did as well. And these signs and wonders supplemented this word and deed message that was going out. This allowed both Jews to realize that this was the fulfillment of things promised. There is healing and vision given to the blind that we've been anticipating and waiting in a Messiah. If those actions are taking place, then we need to embrace and accept the one who's doing them. And in the Gentile lands, who think that their gods over these hills and this city and this country are what rule, these signs and wonders would show them that those gods are not gods. But the power of this Jesus Christ being proclaimed is the true God. And then we see what did these means through these ministers bring about? It brought about obedience of the Gentiles. Verse 18. Now you might think, well, why did Paul, why don't you say bring about the faith of the Gentiles? And isn't the process of becoming a disciple or a Christian mean that you believe you have faith in Jesus? Well, 
Paul does talk a lot about faith and even in the book of Romans. You know, he emphasizes that it is the righteous who shall live by faith. And looking at Abraham, he says, all of us like Abraham are saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also from beginning to end in Romans that Paul likes this idea of the obedience of faith. That phrase first comes up in chapter 1, and in his sign-off prayer and salutation, he will use it again in 16, verse 26. I think it's a very powerful message of what obedience of faith means. But let me start with this. This last week, I read a blog from a dear friend and mentor, gentleman who's a Bible, te- Bible faculty member at a university here in the area. And the blog title was this, Ask Jesus Into Your Heart. Only your heart? And it's a short piece, but he kind of digs into what are some of the maybe unintended consequences of this often used phrase in evangelicalism for the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years. And again, we can all hear different hear different phrases and interpret them in different ways based upon our background. But he says this. He says, sometimes I worry that when we hear or use the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart, first, the words like love and heart have very fluid, flexible understandings, at least in Western English. And he says, it could easily be understood to mean that, well, I want to invite Jesus to where he feels close and intimate to me. And it can be interpreted as what's important and most important and what Jesus wants for me is that I just feel close to Jesus and what really matters is what I feel about him inside. But this phrase, obedience of faith, pushes against that at least potential misunderstanding in that phrase. The call to discipleship is a call to complete surrender in our worthy King. He doesn't just want our heart, but Jesus demands that if we follow him, he has and owns our feet, our knees, our legs, that we would go where he would instruct us to go and live as he instructs us to live, our stomachs, that our appetites, not just for food, but for the things we desire would be changed to align with his, our minds, that our thinking would be transformed, our hands, that we would serve as he tells us to serve. The obedience of the Gentiles hits at this picture, that true faith is proven by a life of transformation. Friends, there may be some of you here in this room that maybe have heard this before, understand that faith in Jesus is the call of the scriptures, but this type of faith, an obedience of faith, of complete surrender to the Lord, is not a decision that you have made yet. Perhaps you're young and you're here faithfully with parents listening to this message. Perhaps you're here visiting and trying to understand more about what the Bible says. But the Bible is clear that that is the step the Lord calls every person to make. In Hebrews, he says that today is the day of salvation. We don't know how many days that we would have left to be able to respond to that invitation. But I want to pause to just clarify, what is that invitation? We've talked about how all scriptures point to Jesus, 
but I'd like to give just a brief summary of that trajectory and that story, that narrative of what God has been and is continuing to do in the world today. This obedience of faith starts with understanding that God is creator and God is king. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And although he made everything good, things did not remain good. Our first parents believed the lie that we could actually be like God. And since they bought that lie, all of you and me and every person now lives with that at the top of our priority of life. What can I do for me and how can I be the one that sets the standards for right and wrong and what I should do? The whole story of the Bible is vivid at showing what a disaster project that is. The first chapters of Genesis after the fall, we see the first murder. We see the increase of hatred and evil growing and cultivating. And all of us, from the time that we're born and by the wrong things that we do, like every human, are guilty of these shortcomings and rebellion against God. And there's only one right consequence. That is judgment. That is death. That is separation and torment away from a holy God whose perfection can tolerate nothing less. But the story of the Bible, starting with one man, Abram, Abram, is to say that God has slowly been revealing that in his love, he wants to change that. It is in Abram that he said, I will choose you, and not just to give you a land and to make you a people, but through you, one man, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So even in the beginning of the Bible, the goal of all peoples coming to know him is right dead center. Throughout the Bible, as we described earlier, talking about the sacrificial system and Israel's priestly role to the nations, he expanded that vision and said, hey, Israel, you now went from one man to a small family to a country. I want you to shine to the nations. I want them to see why you are different. You'll do some weird things to your male babies when they're freshly born. You'll do some different customs and habits that make you stand out from the rest of the nation. But it's so that they may know that I am the Lord and I dwell in your midst. But Israel failed miserably at that project. They were to be a light to the world, but they themselves descended into darkness. But it's even then that God gave promises saying that I will send a representative who will do what Israel did. That is the Messiah. What we celebrate here this time of year, every year at Christmas, is God giving that Messiah to us, the long-awaited promises fulfilled. Jesus came sinless, unlike Israel and us. He came and fulfilled that mission of Israel to represent God to people. And he paid that ultimate sacrifice, a sinless life of the God-man laid down, that for those who repent of their sins and believe in him, his blood would cover and absorb that punishment that our sins deserve. And he would then make us a new creation and have a relationship with him. Amen. Friends, if that is something that you have questions about, 
or that is not a good story that reverberates in your heart as a treasure to be pursued, but you want to know more, please speak with me. Please speak with our pastors. Please speak with the person next to you. It is the most important decision that will ever be put in front of us. And we cannot respond to the invitation to participate in reaching the nations if you yourself are not already one of those offerings to the Lord. So please turn and trust in Jesus for your life, for your treasure, for your purpose. So our point is that we're on is participate in Jesus' work by God's means. The first step is become a worker, become an offering. But what are other ways in which we can participate in that? We mentioned them, several of them earlier, but part of it is, is just taking the step to share this good news to some of the nations that are even around us. Even in this own church, we have a significant number of nations that are represented. And our neighborhood represents a diversity of nations. The message that we just heard is something that we can all share if you're a follower of Jesus in our own neighborhoods. But as I mentioned this week in the Southern Baptist Convention, we want God's mission everywhere in our neighborhood and everywhere else, but there's a special way in which we want to focus on it to where it has never been heard before. This brings us to our third point today, which is this. We are to unveil the gospel to the unreached. We are to unveil the gospel to the unreached. Verse 20. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written... Those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Again, the global scope of God's Gentile saving mission is very clear. This verse might bring up a question, though. Okay, Paul, that's a good ambition or aim, but is there something wrong I should pick up from this verse about building on another person's foundation? Is that uh, superior? Not as good? Is that not what we should be focusing on? Sorry, making up words here. Um, no, it's not saying that building another person's foundation is wrong. Otherwise, we should have a message for our pastor of the pulpit, PJ. What's he doing building on the foundation of all these pastors that have been here at this church um, for all of these years? In fact, that's how the church works, is generation after generation. Uh, is building on the foundation of the gospel that his church may be a more beautiful and built-up edifice awaiting his return. But Paul says that it's his ambition, because again, on the Damascus Road it was clear, his life is now in a special way interwoven with this trajectory, that in the fulfillment and coming of the Messiah, we are now in an age where God's message of salvation is to go out to the nations. The reason... Building on another foundation isn't Paul's priority, is because although Paul does shepherding all throughout his life, he is not primarily a pastor. He is a missionary. And he's a missionary to the Gentiles where he has not been heard. And poor guy, he already missed out on this chance of 
planning the church in Rome, right? You know, I guess he gets to preach to them, but there are more places that he wants to go. I didn't elaborate on this a bit ago, but Paul actually says kind of a crazy thing in verse 19. He says that, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is probably in modern-day Albania, just on the other side of Greece. How can Paul say that I have fully proclaimed the gospel? I mean, these churches at the time, we know there were several thousand that were added to their number in the church of Jerusalem, but how big were some of these churches in Colossae and Thessalonica, some places he was only there for a couple of months? How could it really be that it's fulfilled? Does that mean everybody or close to everybody in those regions is now a follower of Jesus? Does not mean that. But again, with this focus of Paul's purpose is to keep pressing, to keep unrolling the gospel, to tuck it into the farthest corners of the globe. He at least says this, there's something in those regions that did not exist before. The local church, an outpost of the gospel, established and now continuing the ministry that he started. Paul wants to keep fulfilling his calling in that way by keeping on going. In just a few verses after our passage, Paul makes it really clear. This is an invitation that he wants the church in Rome to participate in with him. This is Romans 15, 23. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my, for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is looking for assisters. Paul is looking for senders. Will you go like Paul, or will you send which goers need? Those of you who read Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad probably will have it for the rest of your life echoing in your ear that there are only three categories of Christians with regards to foreign missions. There are those that are going, those that are sending, and those that are Disobedient. Paul is not giving us the option for the third category. But friends, I'll admit that I played my own role in participating in being disobedient. I myself need to be refocused and reformed by looking at God's priorities in his words to where whether it's sending or whether it's the steps or process towards going, that is characterizing the habits of my life that I will be obedient to the Lord in that way. So how can we participate in this? Well, as a sender, 2024 is around the corner. That doesn't mean every household is starting a new budget conversation, but it could be for you as an individual in your family. Are there changes within the resources God has given us that could show that we cherish and prioritize reaching the unreached? That is both a call to missions in general, but also, as Paul says, would you consider doing it to a place where the gospel has never been before? Another thing that we can do corporately as the body of BBC is this. How can we be considering and helping select who might be the goers from among us? It's a privilege that we have a sent family who, just under two years ago, 
made their trip to take the gospel or participate in the gospel work in Central Asia. Hopefully, that is not the last family that we sent from Bethany Baptist. But even if you're not going, how can you be recognizing who those people might be? And how can you in your conversations and in your prayer, but I really challenge in your direct interaction with them, how can you try to encourage them, build them up, get them to see and to seriously consider what going might be like? If we're just praying in our own quiet huddles and asking, Lord, should I go or should I not? We'd be very self-deceived to think that both all the distractions and inputs from our flesh and the world are massively heavy at tipping that scale. But the influence of God's people and God's church will help us be reminded of what should be the greatest priorities. And then lastly, if it's not somebody else at BBC going, or from another local church, another part of the globe, to reach the unreached, will it be you that goes? A few weeks ago, I met with a friend. His name is Alec, um, a recent university graduate who I know from the church that we were members at before. And Alec and I have always gotten along. He's a sharp-thinking young man, very humble and likable. Since he graduated college, we talked a lot about business. He started his own website design company while a college student and has been working on growing that. He also participated in this business venture capital startup competition, and it was really fun to talk with him about how to win that competition and how this business could be really helpful. Um, it didn't win and it's not going, but he learned a lot from it. Um, but Alec is intelligent and it, very intelligent, and every time I have a soul check-in with him, it is good for my soul. But I was surprised in a good way when I was chatting with him and asked him, so Alec, how are your online seminary classes going? He started these uh, a couple, about a year ago for just kind of like the continuous learning, personal development, as a good mature Christian should think about opportunities like that. But this was his answer. He said, well, it's interesting that you should ask. They are going well, but there's actually some things that are changing in my life. See, I'm actually, instead of trying to do business and a little bit of personal enrichment, I'm trying to up the seminary load and decrease work because I feel that I'm being called to overseas missions. This had never been something that he and I had talked about. I mean, again, I'm not totally surprised as he seems to be a mature believer, but I asked him, Alec, wow, that's, that's incredible. We're, we haven't talked in months. How did you get here? What happened? And he said, well, it happened actually pretty quickly. He says, but in short, over the last year, Somehow I found myself repeatedly listening to messages at conferences, and over and over again, the message was reminding about the need for goers. And as I looked around the room and I saw young families, I saw older saints but with physical infirmities and afflictions, I saw other people with connections or roots that were faithfulness for them and worship to God looked like faithfulness where they're at, as a single guy with, without debt and kind of a flexible work schedule, who would be really in a better position besides me? And then I thought this, why is it I so often put the burden of proof on going versus staying? That interaction with Alec challenged me 
to think about the same. And he shared more things. He said, it's crazy the things I'm learning. There's plenty of resources to make reaching the unreached happen. Alec is considering being a student at Radius, a mission school just across the border in Mexico. And he said, I found out that there's a fund, a partnership there where they will forgive or pay off up to $100,000 of college debt for young people willing to learn a language and willing to go. He said, it seems like people are waking up to the need for the nations to be reached, but the greatest shortage is still in the gods. I'll just briefly take a look at the citation that we actually read earlier in the gathering at the end of our passage in verse 21 here, where Paul says, It is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is coming from the fourth servant song in Isaiah, which thank you, Ross, for reading earlier. You should be very familiar with this song. It's where we know that the Messiah would be a Messiah who would come and be crushed by God's own choosing. That he would suffer, be mutilated beyond recognition as part of God's plan. But it's interesting, in the middle of this, and in the midst of a conversation that is talking about God saving his people, a people that are going into exile, there's these verses where it talks about the nations. In the midst of God's saving plan, even back in Isaiah, it was clear that he wants those who are not told about him to see, and those who have not heard will understand. When Jesus came and suffered, just as he said in Luke 24, and Paul said to Agrippa in Acts 26, he was launching this as well. Launching not just that I would come and suffer, but launching that it would be not just this exiled, disobedient, stiff-necked people of Israel, but it would be every nation that would come and bow their knee to me. Friends, we are in the midst of that project right now. The nations can't place hope in what they haven't heard. But also, no Christian, no one of us, will undertake a mission that we don't understand or care about. Again, your email inbox or your paper mailbox may be flooded with appeals for you to participate in many good things this year. I hope that you will prayfully, not just flippantly, Choose which ones to engage in and which ones not to. But friends, Paul and God's word is clear. As those saved by Jesus, there is one partnership so beautifully connected to the heart of God and dead center on the trajectory of creation that should be above all others. That's the priority of God's glory being sung from those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. And for so many of us here, you have given us messengers in our life, as PJ gave you thanks for earlier, that we would hear your word. Lord, we thank you that you chose us, 
you regenerated our hearts and allowed us to respond to your love for us. Lord, may we grow in realizing that your love is not just something that we should expect as a feeling, but your love is so powerfully displayed in the testimony of our life, of other saints' life, and in the testimony of your holy scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would impassion us, that you would stir us, even now in December of this year, to participate in new ways, in at least one next step of obedience to joining and partnering in your work. And Lord, for those of us here who are afflicted and suffering, who would love to more practically feel like they could participate in this work, but sickness, challenges with family, or other afflictions keep them here, Lord, thank you for the reminder that it is not our work, it is yours. So Lord, teach us to rest in you and to draw all strength and wisdom for faithfully living the next step for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.